0: That's heritageradionetwork.org/15 to donate and enter to win today, and make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you.
1: This episode is brought to you by the Sexton Single Malt Irish Whiskey, the best-selling Irish single malt in the U.S. The Sexton is an unexpected modern malt for the everyman, rich in hue, approachable in taste, and memorable in character. Learn more at thesexton.com.
2: I'm HRN's executive director, Katie Mosman Wadler, with a preview of this week's episode of Meat and Three, HRN's weekly food news roundup. This week, we're celebrating pride. We speak to the bakers who created a custom wedding cake for Charlie Craig And David Mullins, the couple behind the Masterpiece Cake Shop Supreme Court case. We felt that what happened to Charlie and David
1: was an absolute injustice.
2: Kat Johnson addresses the controversy surrounding Antony Porosky, Queer Eye's food and wine expert.
3: Many viewers thought these recipes were unsophisticated.
2: And finally, Hannah Forden speaks with nutrition educator Leah Kurtz about the relationship between veganism and queer identity. It's an interesting way in which food can challenge invisible value systems even greater
3: than sexuality does.
2: Listen to Meat and 3, that's M-E-A-T plus sign T-H-R-E-E, this week. And celebrate pride with HRN. Available on Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, and your favorite listening apps.
3: This is Meant to Be Eaten on Heritage Radio Network. I'm your host, Coralie. Joining me today is a Baltimore based artist whose medium of choice is food. From her website, quote, Rosemary List creates nourishing experiences that provide a symbiosis between mouthfeel and carnal perception, end quote. We'll be talking about how her love affair with fermentations began, her Nuka performance piece slash residency at the Noma Ferments Lab, and her current role at Bar Clavel. Welcome to the show, Rosemary. Thank you for having me. So let's do just that. Can you talk about your introduction to ferments at HEX? And now I'm seeing that there's actually a HEX ferment sticker that's here. So that's so perfect. awesome
4: to see that. I, <laughs> for, I wasn't sure if they'd come on the show, ferment about it, but... Looks like they
3: did. Yeah,
4: living proof. Yeah. Um, Well, I'm glad to be here. And so, a while back, I was doing a lot of freelance in the film world and feeling stressed out about that feast or famine Mm -hmm. of the paycheck. And I wanted some stability. And this small shop was opening up in a market near my house. And they were doing kombucha, sauerkraut, and kimchi. And I had met the woman, Megan, before. I had actually got some of her kombucha for the opening of a show I did. I wanted to have, like, a kombucha cocktail. And so I went up, and I was like, I'd love to work for you. (laughs) Part-time turned into full-time almost immediately, and I kind of fell head over heels in love with everything that was happening in that small space, Um, from learning about the health benefits of, fermented foods to the microbiome to kind of educating all of our customers and then all of the textures visual components of actually making the sauerkraut and the kimchi and the kombucha and I started photographing everything and suddenly this thing that was happening just the job turned into such an inspiration for my studio practice and everything kind of blended together and a coworker at one point was like oh I just watched this episode of David Chang's mind of a chef, and he went to Copenhagen and was on this boat called the Nordic Food Lab. Check it out. And I went home and watched it that, le- that night, and I immediately emailed them the next day being like, I gotta come. <laughs> it was just like, there was something inside me. I was like, this is the place for me. And actually, Josh um, Evans responded quite promptly and said, hey, we'd love to have you, because I kind of proposed a project for them. But they were in the process of moving from the boat to the a lab in the University of Copenhagen, and so it was kind of a hectic time for them. He was like, we'll keep in touch. And actually, we, he emailed me months later, uh, and I was up in Vermont doing a residency actually working on my Nuka performance piece, something that I had kind of been inspired to create from being at HEX. We had a Nuka pot, which we can talk about, and he said, we're opening up applications for our summer uh, intern program, please apply i did suddenly i was like in line to get a visa and Mm. going to copenhagen summer 2015 i was there for three
3: months so you're saying your your work at hex really influenced or inspired your studio practice and so what was your studio practice before and did the nuka performance piece kind of overwrite that or yeah
4: i mean there was still a lot of like textural and uh Uh, the palette was very similar to things I was doing that were more two-dimensional and painting. Um, I'd started doing more, like, installation pieces that were very amoeba-like before I even was thinking about the microbiome, but often I was just, like, in the studio making a mess. I came from creating these very... uh, bordering on abstract, but still in the realm of realism, paintings of these big old movie theaters in Baltimore, something Mm -hmm. that was my thesis uh, as a senior in college, and when I moved home, I wanted to get away from that, Mm. and I started just, like, diving into a different world, and then I was really influenced by everything that was happening at Hex, and I was like, taking all these photos, sometimes secretly, (laughs) because actually, after a point, we were like, okay, no more photos, it's having a phone is like a bacteria hotbed to have mm-hmm. it like near anything that you're making in the kitchen so you really shouldn't have your iPhone out or smartphone out in the kitchen space but sometimes I'd sneak a sneak a photo <laughs> <laughs> sorry Megan <laughs> um, and I was making these quilts that were uh, digital Im- images that I had kind of manipulated from taking a photo of the sauerkraut mm-hmm. and we were doing all sorts of different krauts some with seaweed and Burdock root and uh, gold beets. And it was so beautiful looking. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I was so inspired by all of that. And it also just learning more about my health through working there and having struggled with my own issues with health and digestion and things like that. It was such a like mind opening
3: experience. Mm. Yeah. So... In your initial email to the lab, did you already propose the nuka project, or was uh, that something that came? No, the
4: nuka. Actually, I don't think we had even started working on the nuka pot when I emailed them. The nuka pot came like later in the summer that year.
3: Mm-hmm. Oh, so for our listeners, can you explain what nuka? Ah, uh,
4: nuka zuke. So it's a Japanese pickle. It's um, a rice bran substrate that you bury any kind of vegetable. Although now I learned fish too. Yeah. You can put fish in it. Um, and it once the brand the bed the nuka pot has been active basically any vegetable or um food object that goes (laughs) in it gets pickled overnight which is incredible because it's such a hot bed of bacteria and yeast yeah um so to start a a nuka bed you would you can some people add uh, sourdough bread a little bit of beer sometimes um and salt a lot of salt and the salt kind of keeps the pathogens at bay. And then as you're adding more vegetables, the yeast from the skins of the vegetables create this really warm and delicious bed of bacteria. Good bacteria, yeah. But sometimes it can get really weird. Like, we were trying all sorts of things at Hex, and we started burying black Spanish radish, and it got too funky. It was like, you stuck your hand in the nuka bed to... So you aerate it. It needs to be aerated every day it needs oxygen and you would stick your hand in this bed and sometimes it would be warm but when we started bearing the spanish radish it would be like hot (laughs) in there started freaking me out (laughs) so and then it started like smelling weird we had to like put it away for a while so we stuck it in the fridge with some um, mustard actually if your nuka ever gets really weird Mm -hmm. put it in the fridge cover it with mustard powder and and salt and let it sit and kind of like recharge
3: What does the mustard do?
4: Um, I think, so mustard um, can, like, combat, like, over yeastiness, I think, if I recall correctly. Um, And it definitely, like, rebalances it. So we, like, did that for a month. And then I think, yeah, because it was so weird. Mm -hmm.
3: (laughs) So did you have to remove all the vegetables? Yeah, yeah. Okay.
4: Before that, we were doing vegetables every day. Mm -hmm. And then whoever was in the shop the next day would have that experience of, like, unburying and that For me, was like the dance of unbearing the vegetable every day and aerating it. And the nuka we had was in a ceramic crock, and so you'd take this heavy crock off the shelf and then have this like little choreography with it every day. We called it our pet. So <laughs> no, it's
3: very much a pet, it's a very, I know I get all pet. stressed out now. Yeah, so I have a nuka bed and I also have sourdough starter at home. Yeah, and that's a
4: lot. It's yeah. like you have
3: kids. No, seriously, I can't go on vacation. Anymore. Yeah, I'll be out. <laughs> Um, like eating dinner like oh no I have not fed that in two days Yeah, it is I'm like a, I'm a really bad parent
4: <laughs> I actually I started in Nuka again recently because my boyfriend is uh, interested in Japanese pickles and we're doing some experiments for a project and I got really stressed out because we'll be really busy with our jobs and everything come home super late and then I'll be like I can't do it right now and <laughs> we'll go up two days without aerating it so but sometimes it actually like I know you're not supposed to do that but sometimes the pickles taste really good after leaving it in there for two days so
3: so what do you do with this overabundance of pickles because my issue is yeah, every day it's I'm like, and you just have pints and pints of all these right really salty
4: well I brought some of mine oh, great. so <laughs> <laughs> you have
3: to add eat. it to the file but they're really
4: warm because they came on the bus with me Aww, so I want to <laughs> eat them um well one thing we were doing at hex was we started dehydrating a lot of them hmm. and so I think at some point I don't know if I'm like blowing hex's cover but at some point there might be powders involved I don't know if they're going to do anything with those or if it's just an experiment um, but I love the idea of like powdering everything. Mm-hmm. Um, it's but such a great way.
3: How would you? How would the home then cook you could, like, apply a powder?
4: Yeah. Well, you'd have to have a dehydrator, mm-hmm. and then you would have to have a good blender, um, mm-hmm. and then you. The nice thing about that is it would, the shelf life is so much longer, and you can then sprinkle it on anything, salads, and put in dressings, and mm-hmm. on top of fish or other pickles. Get what, weird. Would it
3: still have? Would it still be active? Mm-hmm.
4: I think maybe if you do it on very low setting, okay. you know, on like the Excalibur, the lowest setting is for alive
3: things. Mm-hmm. That'd be really interesting if you could have test an it for powder. its microbial activity. Yeah, exactly, yeah. and then use that to accelerate. Kind other of like pickles.
4: a powdered probiotic, yeah, but exactly. have it be
3: maybe there's your new uh, venture. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> GoFundMe. Here you go. <laughs> Anyway, so let's let's take it back. Um, so we were talking about the NOMA ferment Men's Lab. So yeah. y- you proposed this um, kind of quote Oh, quote right, so piece. I'm not
4: sure if I... Um, the, the Nuka performance piece was actually done in Vermont at okay. the Vermont Studio Center, and that was an artist residency. And while I was there, I got the email from Josh being like, please, if you're inter- still interested, you can apply for the internship. Um, so I... And I think actually this was my original idea was to do something with kombucha scoby as mm. more of an artistic medium. And mm. I ended up doing that there, but I also applied with a more comestible project. So that's why I talked about nuka as being something I was going to do research on there. Okay. So the nuka part was more research-based and less of the artistic component, component. And then I also, alongside of that, did this like big kombucha installation but actually, while I was there, I kind of got fed up with doing my newga research because <laughs> I got bored. Sci- uh, a lab is maybe not the right place for me. I'm a little too uh, chaotic, and the the confines of like doing the exact same thing every day to figure out, yeah, how things were gonna change in taste. Uh, so I was burying the same vegetable every day. Mm to give myself a limit and structure, but that ultimately was kind of suffocating and I was watching all these people like plate beautiful <laughs> nordic style dishes and and my colleague um Bernard who's from Barcelona, he was doing this really cool research project on tempeh, um, so there's a lot of really awesome things going on there at the same time, and I was like, this is boring. I love <laughs> nuka, but I'm not. i just like, I'm going to stop. So then I started working specifically with kombucha and um, d- actually trying to figure out ways to like p- make dishes with the kombucha mother, with the zooglial mat, that membrane, and that was really fun, because then I got to work with the other chefs in the lab and be like, well, if I do this, if I poach this, if I... I make kombucha with an oyster <laughs> in the the tizan is that going to be disgusting or is that going to be really delicious yeah and that was really fun and I started doing a little bit more of a project on our relationship to disgust and kind of creating these beautiful dishes with the kombucha mother as this centerpiece um ultimately I found that it's very hard to still chew like actually get your teeth through the membrane hmm. So even when it's cut up into small pieces, but it was great to make all this kombucha. And then I had all these mothers that I also dehydrated and created this kind of uh, quilt that hung over the lab Hmm. so the light would go through
3: it. Oh, wow. Yeah. What's the texture of it? The kombucha, yeah, Mother not her. dehydrated. It
4: um, not dehydrated. It's almost like gelatin, but huh. then there's this last thin layer that you can't really bite through.
3: And what's it made out of? Like, what gives it the structure? Yeast and
4: bacteria. Yeah, yeah. just growing, I guess. in la- I don't know exactly scientifically how it grows into that into that mat. Um. Yeah, Jonas, one of the other um, guys at the lab got like really hardcore nerdy into the science component of it and he could probably tell you but <laughs> I stayed a little bit more on the visual end of it um, but it was really nice because there weren't that many kombucha companies in Copenhagen at the time mm-hmm. and so it was great I actually brought a scoby over from Baltimore so all the kombucha I made there was from this mother from oh, wow. Hacks. Yeah, mm-hmm. which was really fun and I got to work with some kids that were just learning more about kombucha and doing their own research there, and so I got to help them with tasting things, because I'd been working for a company that was producing kombucha on a mass scale for a long time. Mass as in like, the now they're almost mid-Atlantic, but at the time it was all Maryland. Um, mm-hmm. But definitely producing a lot, and it was nice to work with people and kind of share my experience with them. And then a lot of the core yeah, ideology of the lab is like working with local ingredients and that terroir but using processes from all over the world and so that was something that we were really trying to focus on is like how can we use different teasons to make kombucha it's really hard still to make a good kombucha without like green tea or black tea but it works
3: so this might be overly simplistic but what's the difference in the process of making like a vinegar with a mother or versus making like a kombucha
4: so i don't know as much about vinegar but actually it's a great question and um I was just visiting a vinegar hmm. company called Keepwell in Pennsylvania, and they're really great. And they actually started making vinegar by accident hmm. when they were making tapache, and they forgot about it. And so I think there's, there's more of like an alcohol process. Okay. I, know that, I know that if you let kombucha go, it doesn't turn into alcohol. It will turn into vinegar. Huh. Okay. But I don't know enough about vinegar to tell you... The differences. I know there is a mother with vinegar, but it's not the same kind of mother as one that is from, I guess it's just like a different combination of bacteria Hmm. and a whole different process. But it was really beautiful to see these vinegar mothers, and they were in these giant vats, and the the mothers were like bigger than my arms stretched apart. (laughs) And they would actually pull these mothers off like a couple times a week, I think, or at least once a week. Yeah. Um, and the one thing I did learn, the difference between kombucha and vinegar is like if the mother falls, it actually is kind of detrimental to the vinegar versus with kombucha, if the mother falls, it'll just grow a new one and it's no, no big deal. Falls is in? Actually like sinks to the bottom of oh. whatever vessel you're fermenting in. Huh. It kind something about whatever's happening in that mother kind of uh, changes the substrate in a, w- a negative way. That's yeah, so dramatic. It's so <laughs>
3: like <laughs> it, you go into the lab and it falls like no, it's done.
4: But it's yeah, it's such a beautiful process either way. And that was always something that I was so drawn to about fermentation is that it's so alive, mm-hmm. and it reminds me how much like myself as a human is. Just, I'm just like covered and filled with bacteria. Mm-hmm. Sometimes not good bacteria. I just survived a horrible stomach bug and I thought I was going to die. So,
3: yeah. So does that relate to your, um, your work or on that kombucha project where you're talking about your relationship to disgust or our relationship to disgust?
4: Yeah, I think, well, part of it is the unknown and then part of it is looking at things that... or this perception of things being disgusting. So something that's like slimy... But that's also that relationship to discuss can be one person's oysters, someone else's, like, uh, that's disgust I don't know how to explain that mm-hmm. well, but it really depends on the person. I like a lot of weird things that most people... Like, I love eating tripe. I love lengua taco, you know, that's tongue. Mm-hmm. And um, I'll eat eyeballs. I love the fish heads. You'll see me in the corner like <laughs> in a kitchen, like scarfing down the fish. Um, so, I like those things. A lot of people think are gross.
3: Mm. So, is that what you try to do with the kombucha art? Is I think, like repurposing what, something. Yeah, that
4: the the actual installation was less about the disgust part and more about showing this thing that's often discarded Mm because just like your sourdough starter, you know, you have to throw out a little bit every time and the kombucha mother is constantly regenerating. It's almost exhausting Mm -hmm. and often people just compost it, give it away, but if you dehydrate it, it becomes this vellum. You can draw on it. It's really beautiful and it's pretty structurally sound too. Mm -hmm. And So I dehydrated them, laminated them, put them in a vacuum sealer and then created this quilt Wow, and I think it will be around for a while. Yeah, (laughs) I mean it's encased in plastic now too. So, but it's beautiful because then the light shines through it differently. Mm -hmm. Yeah, with the the dishes I was working on, those were more like creating beautiful little plates of things that, like, an oyster shell with this what looked like a little oyster, but it was actually a kombucha mother Hmm. with squid ink and things like that. And then, so you're kind of turning that on its head. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Wait, so then you
3: could eat that.
4: Yeah. Yeah, so that dish specifically, which h- had mixed reviews, <laughs> 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 which is okay. <laughs> you know, I don't always aim to please. Um, I don't know if that project was a success, but that's okay. Mm. It, uh, I actually made that, c- that kombucha mother came from the kombucha I put an oyster in. Oh, yeah, so it was quite salty and weird. Mm-hmm. But it grew. It grew a mother. And then I harvested it, cut the kombucha into the shape of an oyster, mm-hmm. put it in an oyster shell on a bed of like straw. Yeah. And then made people eat it.
3: <laughs> <laughs> so this is Meant to Be Eaten on Heritage Radio Network. Uh, we're going to come back after a really short break.
1: I'm Souther Teague of Moria Margo and co-host of The Speakeasy on Heritage Radio Network. This episode is brought to you by the Sexton Single Malt Irish Whiskey, a new and unexpected modern malt for the everyman. The whiskey is made from 100% Irish malted barley, triple distilled for smoothness in copper pot stills, and consciously aged for four years in Oloroso sherry butts. My favorite part about the Sexton is that sherry influence from those Oloroso sherry butts. They're the large sherry uh, barrels that have been used. then the uh, whiskey gets aged in them for four years, giving them this sort of nutty, almost savory quality. Um, The copper pot still makes for an extremely smooth finish. Um, I like it in a highball or just neat. Uh, Every time I have a sip, I I want another one. So next time you're gathered with friends or posted up at your favorite bar, reach for The Sexton, the best-selling Irish single malt in North America. You can learn more at thesexton.com.
3: This is meant to be eaten. I'm here with food artist Rosemary Liss. We were just talking about making a kombucha out of oysters, um, and how the kombucha mother can maybe be edible, um, which I think ties really nicely into the theme of my podcast, which is uh, you know what's meant to be eaten, and what is not, or is how, or how a thing is meant to be eaten. And so, how when you're working with food, whether it's experimenting um, with these fermentations or styling a food uh, set, how does your approach? To food change, it has it thinking about it hmm. change. So,
4: are you asking based on the process I'm using, Where, so when I'm styling maybe for a photograph versus something that I would create for a friend or a
3: meal? Um, kind of. So, even for this example with the oyster kombucha, yeah. right? You were cutting this oyster-shaped um, object or oyster-shaped kombucha mother and plate plating it, right? Um is that it's, it was probably very visually stunning but would you is that intended to be a delicious experience or is that more <laughs> so like a, an art
4: yeah I think with that I was hoping a little bit of both mm-hmm. um, but that was where you know people agreed and disagreed with with my project um, that, then that kind of also lands that experience in the it just depends from person to person mm-hmm. what taste good or not yeah i think often often i aim for also delicious but it doesn't always happen and i'm okay with that mm-hmm. uh i've done a lot of things with jello actually for different um more edible experiences so I'll do like oat milk Mm jello dusted with beetroot powder or um, kombucha jello often which is an interesting relationship like you have the kombucha mother that's almost gelatinous but if you take the kombucha and just make jello with it you kind of get a similar experience without having that weird membrane Mm -hmm. that you can't chew through Mm -hmm. so often since then I've done more things actually using gelatin or agar which is fun and that for the most part is always tasty. The thing about the kombucha mother is it's also so acidic Mm. that if that's not something you're into it can be hard to digest.
3: Huh.
4: Yeah. But I'm also okay with everyone not enjoying the things that I I make. Mm
3: -hmm.
4: That's just gonna happen. Right. I was...
3: I had Jen on the show a few months ago and we were talking about um, the different ways you can consume food whether it's like a food photograph or um, actually food food in front of you and so how do you think... When you are styling a set, or when you are plating a plate of food, what? How does the intended reception or consumption change depending Mm. on what you're doing?
4: Yeah, I mean, there are definitely points where, in order to make it look good, the taste starts to fall away just because of the time it takes to put something together, or or you're spending so much time on the visual component that, and maybe the recipe you were using was I made these. But oh oat flour waffles ones with like cocoa and like some adaptogen powders. and I was really excited about it, and I styled this beautiful photo and they taste like crap. <laughs> <laughs> they did not taste good, but that's okay. I got a really nice photo out of it. so I don't know. It's a lot of trial and error also, but, but then there's also the idea of creating experiences. I think I'm more interested in this in the times when the food tastes really good but looks like shit. Hmm. where either because you've created this visual experience where everyone's just, like, pawing away at it with their hands and everything's starting to crumble and fall apart and it just becomes this, like, detritus on the table, um, but everything still tastes good. Hmm. I I aim more for those experiences than something that looks beautiful and tastes... Like fondant. I hate fondant. I think it tastes disgusting, but you can see all these beautiful fairy tale cakes made of fondant and then you eat it and it's so disappointing. I hate that. Mm -hmm.
3: But I... while well, I totally agree. I think there's <laughs> something really intriguing about your oat, flour, oh. cocoa powder, adapted <laughs> thing because it's kind of like, even though it wasn't the most delicious thing, it's at least kind of hopeful or maybe optimistic in that these items can be combined and sure. give the eater this desired yeah. experience. And I feel like that's still successful in some way.
4: My problem was I tried to grind my own oat flour, wow. so the texture wasn't that great, and then I wasn't really looking at the recipe properly, and I added too much salt. But that's okay. Okay, so for that, another That's time. just my, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I'm bad at following recipes. I'm more just like, okay, I'll throw this stuff in together. That's why I like fermentation, because it's often just a gut reaction, and you're mm-hmm. basically just in with your elbows deep, just figuring it out. You know, yeah, you can put too much salt, but then you just add more vegetable and you wait longer. Baking is really a whole different ball game for me. I haven't gotten there yet. Mm. Um, it's a little too rigorous. I
3: feel <laughs> Although, like that's a really unique take on fermentation, though. I feel like a lot of people, myself included, are really intimidated by fermentation yeah. it's like there's this active live thing that's happening without your control. That's what I like about it. Yeah, okay. but then how would it's you? So fascinating. Are there Things that you like visual cues that you look for. I
4: mean often it's just taste. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah, if things are bubbling that's good. That's a good sign. If there's if it's not getting black, that's also a good sign. <laughs> not moldy. <laughs> no mold. Although if there's look white yeast, that's okay, you can scrape that off. The huh. calm yeast, is fine. Some mm-hmm. cultures actually mixed it back in for flavor. It might be a little too intense. That's also a preference for people. Yeah. Uh with the so I'm making tapache, Clavel now, which is a Oaxacan restaurant in Baltimore. They have a mezcal bar. And they do this fermented pineapple drink called tapache. And so it's pretty much just pineapples with their skins mashed, fermented in their own juices, and then we add spices and some piloncillo sugar and let it ferment a couple more days and then press it and bottle it. Um, We've recently been experimenting with bottle conditioning so it has a more active mouth feel which is exciting that like every batch is different because the weather is different the pineapples we get are different and it's all just about like smell taste and like feel and that for me is the fa- my favorite way of uh, working with food because it changes constantly and I just have to go with my gut in a way that um yeah, it makes sense for the the product at the time. Mm-hmm. And I don't have to follow a recipe because it's always changing slightly. And it's more interesting for me that way. I'm a little ADD, and so I need there to be,
3: like, a lot of change and activity mm-hmm. where I get bored. Yeah. Okay, so if I were to do this at home, can I do it small scale? Like, if I just chopped up a pineapple, put it in, like, a deli con- a container? Yeah, yeah. Yeah.
4: It's... um. Yeah, I'm making like 15 gallons at a time now, so I'm thinking about it small scale, but you could just take one or two pineapples, Hmm. and you want to slice them into small triangle pieces with the skins on, Mm -hmm. and then you want to mash them. Why
3: triangle pieces?
4: Well, just so it's an easy mashable piece. Got it. I'm just thinking visually, like that's what I do. I cut it in half, and then a quarter, and then I chop down the line, Mm -hmm. so it's a little triangle. And it's cute that way. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but, and uh, tops off. The tops can make it a little bitter, so you don't want, you mm. can use the top to kind of hold everything down in its juice. And people do it differently. Some people just add water and kind of like mash it a little bit. Some people really mash it and have it ferment in its own juice. It really depends on like the flavor you want. If you have it fermenting in more water than juice initially, it has more of like a sour beer. Ooh. It's a little bit lighter. Not as dank. The dankness is something that we at Clavel really enjoy. <laughs> so, um, And then you can add... Some people add like a jalapeno pepper at one point just Whoa. to give it a kick. Yeah. Or some sliced ginger. There's a lot of different ways to do it. Uh, we just add some hard spices. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So star anise and cinnamon. Um, not to totally divulge our secret recipe, but that's the thing is like with ferments. It's hard to have a secret recipe because no matter what, it's always going to change a little bit. Totally. Yeah. Yeah, we can have a component that we might not share, but in the end of the day, no matter what I tell you, it's going to turn out differently Mm -hmm. for you. Just with what you have, the bacteria in the air in your apartment versus at the bar lab, like it's all different, Mm -hmm. you know. And the vessel. So you can use plastic, food grade plastic. You can use glass. Just be careful that you don't like bust through the glass while you're mashing it people use wooden barrels hmm. yeah it all creates like a different experience for the pineapple you get different flavors yeah
3: so what are you doing at bar Clavel? what is besides so the i came
4: on in december um a good friend of mine kind of helped set up the bar she's opening up a cafe and larder called the larder in baltimore hopefully this summer or the fall and she actually came in from the Bay Area as also a food artist. Her name is Helena, and she worked at Hex, but after I did. We actually didn't meet wow. until later. All these people were like, oh, you have to meet Helena. I oh, have to meet Rosemary. And I've had the opportunity to help her with some of her great pop-up brunches. Um, and she makes some beautiful food helped Lane Harlan, who owns Clavel, set up like a lab space for basically doing more of the ingredients for our cocktails at Clavel in-house. So we make our own tahini, which is the spicy salt on our margaritas. We make a basil oil using a miniature centrifuge called a oh, god. It's really great, <laughs> except for when you have to clean it. <laughs> That's a pain. Um, and then all the tapache. Mm-hmm. And depending on the season um there's different ingredients coming out with bar lab so right now we have a Umaboshi plum honey for oh one cocktail
3: gosh. it's really good did you make the Umaboshi yourself so
4: no but i want to i was actually looking at recipes yeah, you
3: can anything <laughs> so um we maybe that's your
4: next project
3: yeah no um the you know our cook quest the mm-hmm. guy yeah he's coming on in a few weeks oh, and he great. he's Posting all these things where it's like, oh, yeah, I just umboshi'd a green apple and a plum and all these other things and, like, threw some coffee in it. And it's like, oh, so See, smart. there's
4: so much I still have to learn. That's the thing that's so great. It's never ending. Yeah. I still have to put a fish in my nuka
3: <laughs> Don't stick it in. <laughs> you got to just remove some of the, bre- the, the bran and just coat it. Ah, okay, okay.
4: <laughs> uh, so we have kind of upped our production of tapache now that we have the space. Which is exciting, mm-hmm. yeah. And the, yeah, the lab has been a way to kind of see, the nice thing is I also have started bartending in the, the bar downstairs, and so I get to see the whole process, like, creating. And I've changed some of the recipes based on actually working with the drinks, too. Mm-hmm. So, and our spring cocktail list came out a month or so ago, and it's been really fun to... Because I came on in the winter in a point where the cocktails were already set, and I was just making all the products, Mm -hmm. the ingredients, and now I was able to be part of that experience of brainstorming with all the bartenders, figuring out what drinks worked, and Mm -hmm. and then working through all the ingredients to have them ready and make sure we don't run out during the week. So,
3: Do you Drinks follow trends in the same way that foods often do.
4: Yeah, I just, I honestly don't drink cocktails that often, Mm -hmm. (laughs) even though I make all these things (laughs) for cocktails. I will say we have some good cocktails right now, but I just, I, if I'm gonna drink booze, I like drinking a little bit of mezcal straight, Mm -hmm. um, or just with like lemon and salt, lime and seltzer. Mm -hmm. But I think people are starting. Baltimore is a little bit behind in the times, but, uh, craft cocktails, I feel like I've fallen down like on the wayside for more fun, juicy, tiki cocktails. And then I don't know, I think a lot of people are also just getting more excited about wine because there's wines that are more lively and young,
3: mm-hmm.
4: but we, we do have a really good wine list right now. And, um, Lane is in the process of opening uh a wine bar oh amazing yeah and with sake actually and then natural wines mm-hmm. so that's something that she is working towards right now which is exciting but yeah for me i think i want to drink things that taste like kombucha that are a little <laughs> alcoholic so like a sour beer or a, like a really effervescent wine mm-hmm. or like yeah soda lime juice and mezcal that's pretty simple that way mm-hmm. if it's too heavy or syrupy it just gives me a headache so mm-hmm. but it is that actually the interesting thing is while i don't often drink that many cocktails i love making them i love all the movements and i think that kind of connects to my experience of doing the nuka and finding this dance with it mm-hmm. it's definitely so performative and i'm not one of those like shaker people <laughs> that's like all over the
3: place i love when they do the the like the orange twist and just let it settle
4: (laughs) there's some fancy men out there
3: and women and women and people
4: but um I just also the movements though are really fun and I feel that activity in a way that I also loved about working on a line cooking Mm -hmm. although um just in a different it's more performative because often people are watching you although Mm -hmm. an open kitchen would be the same
3: yeah, totally. But
4: when I worked in an open kitchen, it was brunch, and I was wildly stressed out <laughs> <laughs> and, like, throwing eggs. Don't look at me. I was, like, <laughs> I was like, oh, I guess I have a little bit of anger management. It comes out of brunch.
3: No, yeah. I think that's that's totally a thing. It's performative in that if you don't have the muscle memory down either, you're going to drown. Yeah, yeah. and that's
4: a, the people that do the, the best, I think, in that field are the ones that can get into that meditative state. And they have that muscle memory, and nothing gets to them. Because once you start going down, you're like, you can't get back. Yeah. And I see that often in in both fields, like mm-hmm. bartending and in the kitchen. It's like something ticks you off, and then you're just like deep diving down into yeah. this anguish. And you're so mad. It's so hard to come back.
3: Before Barclaval, did you have other food jobs? or Yeah. yeah how do those different... How does working as the bar lab, like, manager, the one who's kind of designing all these ideas, how does that kind of converse with your history and maybe doing, like, front of house or something else? Well,
4: I've worked in a lot of restaurants over the years. It's always something to fall back on, but also because I love food and um, the intensity and the activity around it. And I, when I got back from Nordic Food Lab, I really wanted to have more cooking experience, so I started off front of house at an oyster cellar and then was working cold side yeah. which was um, great I learned a lot um, the chefs I was working with were had been working in the industry for a long time at various restaurants in Baltimore and New York and at the same time I then started I helped um, a girl in Baltimore open well I was I didn't help her open but I was one of the first people to work at this breakfast brunch spot called New America um, so I was kind of doubling sometimes, working breakfast and going and working at night, oh, and I was I was exhausted mm-hmm. and not making any money. But that's the thing, that's the thing about cooking. Mm-hmm. Um, but I learned a lot. I learned the thing about working at New America was that I wasn't working under any more experienced cooks, and so I was trying to like put systems into place that didn't I didn't even know how, like I didn't know about, I just was like making it up as I went. So that was kind of interesting, stressful, but, um, learning a little, learning a lot more at night, but then trying to figure out ways to implement it in this larger space and this whole different scenario and environment. Mm -hmm. Then I kind of got run down and I took a break and walked dogs for the summer (laughs) and made more money. (laughs) Yeah. I made more money. (laughs) Um, and then did a residency in Dublin that this past fall. And I was at a place called The Fumbly, which is a cafe and they have this adjoining stables where they do workshops. A lot of fermentation projects come out of there. And I actually got connected through a friend who I'd met in a residency in Berlin. The last couple of years I've been traveling a lot and doing a lot of residencies and different food-based projects, which has been wonderful. Now I'm kind of trying to put down roots hmm. back home. Yeah.
3: So besides the tapache, what are you working on now? Or what are some projects that you have lined up? The,
4: we're trying to really like streamline the tapache um, for Clavel and just see where that takes us. Mm-hmm. Streamline in the sense of just get more consistency, maybe not always flavor-wise, because that's going to kind of change with the season. Mm-hmm. Um, and then... I think trying to just, like, find balance with my work. I've been working so much this winter. I, After traveling, I was like, I'm going to pay off my student loans, <laughs> <laughs> finally. So I've been kind of hustling really hard and feeling a little worn out in the sense that I haven't been able to even think about the future. Just, like, work every day. Sometimes have a Monday off. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm kind of ready to take a little step back and yeah reassess and see I think for personal projects doing more pickling at home just Mm -hmm. with my boyfriend and kind of experimenting with dishes there and I think building a little bit more of a food styling portfolio just because it's a great way to make a living and it's also something I really enjoy that I've always been taking photographs and Mm -hmm. um, I think it's a good balance between a lot of my interests and there's A good market for it. Mm -hmm. And I think people are open to more experimental aesthetics when it comes to food styling these days. It doesn't have to be your, like, plate with a bun and... Right, right. Some lettuce
3: spritzed with glycerin. I don't know Mm -hmm. No, I feel like a lot of that stuff is already seen as old hat and yeah. doesn't really register on our radar. I mean, now anymore. people
4: like the girls from Lazy Mom are getting um, actual jobs doing... I mean, they did the intro to Ugly Delicious for one of their mm-hmm. episodes, which is great. I love their work. Mm-hmm. And so it's exciting to see people that come from a different background getting more um, jobs, using that m- more experimental vibe for mm-hmm. for editorial work and stuff like that yeah, yeah. so that's cool
3: I've i don't been know, just trying to survive yeah. <laughs>
4: <laughs> survive and thrive with my microbes
3: that's a perfect way to end yeah. um, i've been speaking with rosemary liss on meant to be eaten this is heritage radio network thanks so much for listening